to Galatians in chapter 3, and uh, thank you, Lord, for allowing the equipment to work. Um, as you travel around from place to place, you find different, you have different experiences with technology, let's just say that. It doesn't always work as it's intended to. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received you the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if yet it be in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And so we come now to the book of Galatians in chapter 3, asking the question, How is it that the blessings of God are secured for me? And how are they maintained? Is it by my efforts? Is it by keeping the law? You find, as I said, just as important as the question of salvation by faith uh, is the question of sanctification. And you'll find here in chapter 3 and verse 3, he will say to those Galatians, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? Do you have your Bible open? Could you read that verse for me in your translation, please? It's going to be very similar. Galatians 3.3. 3. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Greg, are you an NASB? I can't remember. No, what are you? Try it. 3.3. 3. Get that phone cranking. <laughs> Yep, three three. Three three. Are you so foolish? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you so foolish? He's asked that twice, didn't he, in the same passage? Oh foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you. So it's not by my efforts, it's not by keeping the law. Remembering that in the book of Galatians, two very basic questions how can I be right in the sight of God? How can I live right as a believer in the sight of God? And the resounding answer of the book of Galatians is that salvation is not attained or acquired by keeping the law or doing good works or doing religious things. And sanctification is not achieved by keeping the law either. 
Now you'll notice in this section a number of words that occur. Uh, And though the word spirit is mentioned four times in the first few verses, it's very important. We'll come to that in just a moment. But you're going to notice also that throughout this section, the word law and the word promise and the word faith or believe. A matter of fact, 15 times faith or a synonym for faith, believe 15 times, law 15 times, promise 9 times. These words are prominent throughout this section. So we want to think about what it is that the Spirit of God through Paul is getting across to us in this particular section. The idea of promise is very prominent. I'm just going to run through these very very quickly. And uh, I shouldn't hesitate to say so, but if any of you would like uh, copies of these um, PowerPoint outlines, uh, I'd be glad to make them available somehow if I could do it through one person uh, and they could pass them on or, you know, we can talk about that later. But some people do like to have the notes and handouts to go over, so I can, I can certainly make those available. The promise of the Spirit, verse 14. The promise to Abraham, verse 16. The promise is not canceled by the law, verse 17. The inheritance, it comes by promise, verse 18. The promise that's made to the seed, who is the Messiah, verse 19. The promise serves a different purpose than the law, and the promise is obtained by faith. You see how prominent the idea is here, promise, in contrast to the law. Verse 14, of course, talks about the promise of the Spirit. We might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse 16, the promise that was made to Abraham. The fact that the promise is not canceled by the law, verse 17, very important. We'll we'll note that argument in just a moment. The covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, cannot cancel, that the promise would become of none effect. Why all of this about promise? Because, you see, promises are made and kept by God. God is the true promise keeper. People are promise breakers. (laughs) They might mean well, but they don't always keep their word, do they? And I'll tell you, you know, I got frustrated. I shouldn't, well, I'm human. What can I say? Little things frustrate me sometimes. I know it never happens to you folks. You're way more spiritual than I am. But anyway, sometimes things frustrate me. I should have known better. So, being a sportsman, you know, uh, I, I go to Gander Mountain, when there was a Gander Mountain, and it was closing down on business, right? So, great time to get a good deal. I go in and I buy a fishing reel. Great deal. Less than half price. Wonderful bait cast and reel. You know, I'm like, yes. You know, so I get this thing, and, and the company goes out of business, and I take this reel out. The very first time I use this reel, right? And the whole inside just falls out. Like literally second cast, everything falls out. Off into the lake, you know, half of the parts. I'm like, man, alive, you know. So I'm on their mailing list. So their name is now changed to Gander Outdoors. We're no longer a Gander Mountain. We're now Gander Outdoors. Restructured the whole deal, right? 
And so uh, I finally, it takes me like 10 tries before anybody ever answers an email, finally answered my email, customer service. I'm like, you know, I bought this reel. It has a one-year warranty on it. I had it the first time telling the story, right? And I really would like to see if you could help me with this. Well, we'd love to be able to help you, but we're no longer Gander Mountain. We're now Gander Outdoors, you know. And so any guarantee that was made through Gander Mountain is now, you know, we're, I'm like, yeah, okay, and I'm going to really like doing business with you guys, you know. I mean, it's a $30 reel. Come on, give me a break. Just do something, you know, no. Guarantee's only as good as the company that backs it, isn't it? Company goes out of business, your lifetime warranty <laughs> just expired, you see. Often that's the case, right? But you see, the value of what is said here when it comes to our inheritance, that is all the blessings that are ours in Christ, salvation, and everything that's in the package, is that it is not based upon uh, law. It's not based upon us keeping something in that sense. It's based on God who made promises and who backs them up with his very character. It's a very critical argument when you come to this section of the book of Galatians. Now, in this section, Paul is going to argue, uh, make his argument from three points. He's going to talk about experience, he's going to talk about uh, an example, and he's going to use the scripture, the exposition of scripture. And I'm going to go over these now, the three things that Paul bases his argument upon. First, the experience of the Galatians. That's what he begins with. It's always a good strategy, isn't it? You're not sure where somebody is spiritually. You've got to do sometimes what we refer to as an x-ray question, you know, a diagnosis. How do you do that? Well, one way you can do it is by saying, well, tell me what your experience is. Tell me, uh, if you are a Christian, tell me how did that happen? And depending on what they answer, if they say, well, I was born that way, you see, well, then you know what you're working with, you see. Or I joined the church, you see, and, you know, whatever the answer may be, you know, you, you, you can go with that. So what Paul does now with the Galatians is to probe back into their experience, to make them think about their own experience. Tell me, he says, you Galatians, um, among whom Jesus Christ was evidently, so clearly was the crosswork of the Lord taught and preached. It was like a billboard in front of you. Um, he was evidently set forth and crucified, I want to ask you this question. And I want to tell y'all folks here this morning that the question he asked is not necessarily the question that you might ask, okay? But it's an interesting way of going about it. Paul did not say to them, tell me, how were you born again? Tell me, how were you saved? Tell me, how did you become a follower of Jesus Christ? No, he says to them, I would learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How did you receive the Spirit of God? Interesting question. And one of the things that perhaps we, we don't get a hold of enough is the fact that the coming of the Spirit of God in the way that He is in this age in which we live is unique to the age in which we live. In John chapter 7 at the end, when the Lord Jesus spoke about, if any man come to me, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water and so on, John adds a commentary by the Spirit of God to say, 
This spake he, that is Jesus, of the Spirit, which had not yet been given, because he had not yet been glorified. Glorified meant he had to come and die, be raised from the dead, ascend back into the heavens, and send the Spirit of God. And any even casual reading of the book of Acts, well, you, you can't hardly help but note the emphasis, the, the overwhelming witness of the Spirit of God who had come to indwell these believers now who were followers of Christ. And so to ask that question to them, how was it that you received the Spirit of God? You didn't do it under the covenant of the law, did you? You didn't do it by keeping the works of the law, did you? No. Well, good question as he probes their experience. And are you so foolish if you began in the Spirit? You think you're now going to be perfected by keeping the law or by the works of the flesh? Oh, it's by the Spirit, isn't it? The answer is obvious. And then, the one that ministers to you the Spirit. Now, I struggled with this verse a long time. Finally, I'm like, duh, there it is right there, right? In verse 5. It's God. Who ministered to them the Spirit? It was God, wasn't it? Or the Lord Jesus, more specifically in that sense. And the one that works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law? Or does he do it by the hearing of faith? So he probes back into the experience of the Galatians. If you began by faith, you think you're now going to be perfected by keeping uh, the law? Or you're going to be perfected by the works of the flesh? Not going to happen. How you began is how you continue. How you received the Spirit was by faith. He'll go on now to talk about, well, if you're ever going to deal with Jewish people, uh, on the subject of uh, salvation, if you will, and the whole concept of the inheritance and blessings and so on, you're going to have to get to Abraham, aren't you? Paul does it in the book of Romans, and, of course, he does it here. And so he brings before us now a powerful example from the life of Abraham, or using the life of Abraham, I should say, uh, as an example. Now, let me tell you three reasons why Abraham is a great example of justification by faith. And why he is used that way in the book of Romans, and why he's used that way in the, in the book of Galatians as well. Uh, three great reasons why Abraham is used as an example. Number one, the fact of his justification. No matter what else you might think, when you turn back to Genesis chapter 15, it says that Abraham was justified before God. Abraham believed God, and God put it down to his account for righteousness. The fact of his justification is crystal clear in Scripture, no matter what else you might think. Number two, the means of his justification. How was it that Abraham was declared righteous before God? Well, again, the Scripture is very clear, isn't it? That Abraham was declared righteous before God because God took him out under the stars one night. And as an old evangelist who's now with the Lord, a friend of mine, used to say, Abraham's the only man that he knows who got saved because he was bad at math. Count the stars, Abraham. <laughs> Couldn't do it, could he? 
And Abraham, as the stars of the heaven are, so shall your physical descendants be. <laughs> Wait a minute. Now Romans, the Spirit of God, analyzes what it was that Abraham actually believed. You see, But there it's clear. He was justified because he believed God. And it was put down to his account for righteousness. The means of his justification. Romans will tell us Abraham looked at his body now as good as dead. Sarah, no spring chicken. She couldn't have children. But he believed that God was able to make life come out of death. There's the essence of the gospel, isn't it? You see, God who can make life come out of death. God could make life come from his dead body. Abraham staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but he believed God at that moment. And God put it down to his account for righteousness. The fact of his justification, the means of his justification, and critical to the argument in the Galatians as well, the timing of his justification. Now I mentioned last night, not to be crass in any way, but it is a reality that when you come to the book of Galatians, you will repeatedly come to the concept of circumcision. To us, it might seem a little bit odd because primarily today, circumcision is a medical procedure. But it was not so in that day. You see, And when we think about the subject of circumcision, well, it's always helpful, isn't it, to think back to the events that occurred. Um, as a matter of fact, I would say that if you don't know the whole story of Abraham that well, you would probably know the answer. Well, you'd know the answer to this question, wouldn't you? Um, even if uh, you hadn't read the book of Genesis in a whole long time, perhaps if you'd never even read it, you'd know the answer to this question. Do you know what comes after Genesis 15? Thank you, Genesis 16. Yes, you see, it wasn't so hard, was it? <laughs> Genesis 16. Yes. So it's in Genesis 15 that Abraham is justified. Now in chapter 16, an interesting thing happens. Again, this seems a little strange in our country and culture and so on and so on, but you find that it was there that, that uh, you know, a lot of time had gone by since God made the promise. And Abraham wasn't getting any younger. Sarah wasn't getting any younger. She says, well, in one morning, Abe, you know, here's what we'll do. This is the plan. We're going to fix this thing. We'll help God out, you see. You take my handmaid, Hagar, and you go in and into her, and if you have a child. You see, problem solved. No problem began, right? And so, um, that's what happens, right? And Ishmael is born. Talk about problems. We're still having today, don't we? Now, since you did so well, do you know what comes after Genesis 16, <laughs> you guessed already, right? Genesis 17. It's in Genesis 17 that God gives to Abraham the rite, the ceremony, the ritual of circumcision. And I want to be very, I don't say it as a pun, pointed here, but um, he gave him a mark in the part of his flesh to say, I want you to be reminded every day <laughs> that the flesh can produce nothing for God. I'm going to get you to put a mark in your flesh that's going to be so apparent to you on a daily basis that your flesh can produce nothing 
to please God. And the rite of circumcision was instituted. But you see, that's way after Genesis 15, isn't it? Abraham wasn't justified by being circumcised. He was justified back in chapter 15. And then the timing of his justification, as Galatians will remind us, the law was 400 years later. So if the Jews wanted to argue, you see, about whether the Gentiles needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, well, wait a minute, both of those things that they argued, what about the father of the Hebrew nation, Abraham? He was justified before he was circumcised. And he was justified before the law was ever given. Matter of fact, 400 years before the law was ever given, Abraham was justified. So you see the beauty of using Abraham as an example to them. Matter of fact, to go on to tell them, and it's one more time when you would hear the Hebrews in the Amen corner, you see, because he says, even as Abraham believed God, verse 6, and was accounted to him for righteousness, yes, Amen, preach it, brother Paul. And know you therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Yes, that's us, the Hebrew children. Oh, but wait a minute. Did you forget what the Scripture also said? The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify thee, the goyim. The heathen, you see. The Gentiles. Remember, synonym, heathen, Gentile, sinner, Gentile. That God would justify the heathen through faith. Wait, if God justifies the heathen through faith, then they which are of faith, they are children of Abraham. In the same way, you see. And the gospel was preached in Abraham's saying, in thee shall all of the goyim, the nations, the Jew, non-Jew, be blessed. (laughs) You forget about that one? Where was that amen? (laughs) You see, the strategy of the Spirit of God through Paul, it's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, this man knew where they were going in their thinking. And of course, behind it was all I emphasize, it was the Spirit leading him. So then, they which be of faith, guess what? They are blessed with faithful Abraham. Yes, whether Jew, whether Gentile. And now to support his argument, his third uh, prong of the attack, if you will, is to use the Scripture. And he'll quote six verses from their own Scripture to establish his point. Six verses from their own Scripture, some of which we already mentioned. The first one's found in verse 6. It's in um, Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The second one, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, that's found in verse 8. In thee shall all the nations be blessed. The third one, found in verse 10. Comes from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The law was a unity. It was a unified whole. It wasn't one from column A and one from column B. You know, choose which one you like and then choose which one you don't like. No, you were obligated to keep the whole thing. It wasn't pick and choose. And therein was the curse. Cursed is the one that doesn't continue in all things which were written in the book of the law to do them. You had to do them. Or there was an inherent curse. 
That's uh, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, and it comes out of Deuteronomy 27, 26. Yes. The fourth one, the just shall live by faith. Now, we often say, and rightfully so, we're not 100% sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but it is interesting that this verse, by the way, I just thought of this too. Remember I, I suggested that there are three books, if you really want to know the gospel, that you ought to be familiar with, the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, and the book of Hebrews. And you'll find this verse quoted in all three of those, those books. The just shall live by faith. It comes from the book of Habakkuk, you see. There's the principle, isn't it? And how clear could it possibly be in verse 11? Uh, it couldn't be any clearer. No man is justified by the law in the sight of God. Nobody gets justified by the law in the sight of God. Because the just shall live by faith. And then the fifth one is found in verse 12 of Galatians 3. It comes from Leviticus 18.5. Leviticus 18.5, the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. It was a system. And once you bought in, so to speak, you were obligated to live in those things. Now, if your mind races ahead, like some of us might do, to think, well, what then about the person in the Old Testament who couldn't keep the law? That's why God established a system of sacrifices. Those sacrifices um, allowed them to be what Paul could say of himself in the book of Philippians, uh, pertaining to the law, blameless. Blameless, why? Not because he wasn't a sinner, but he brought the appropriate sacrifices, which looked forward to the coming of the death of Christ. And on that basis, God could... Establish a relationship with those people through there. But what ultimately happened with the Jews, which you read about in Romans chapter 10, that instead of seeing themselves as sinners who needed uh, salvation through the Messiah that would ultimately come, Galatians, uh, Romans chapter 10 says, they went about and used the law to try to establish their own righteousness. And they missed the very point of the law and the ultimate culmination of the law. Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. They missed the, the end. That is what the law was pointing to ultimately. They missed the Christ because they sought to establish their own righteousness by the law. Therein was the problem. And then the sixth one it comes uh, in chapter 3 and verse 13 from Deuteronomy 21-23. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. You know, they were partly right, weren't they? They looked at Christ being crucified on a cross, and they knew their own scripture said, anybody who's hung on a tree like that is cursed of God. What they didn't get, that Christ was being made a curse for us. He was bearing the curse there. You go back to the oldest book in the Bible, most likely, and it's, it's very strongly... Um, there's strong evidence to say that the oldest book in our Bible is the book of Job. And I'll tell you, it couldn't be more fitting, could it? Because the story of, in the oldest book of the Bible is the greatest question of, of humanity still to this day. And many even honest skeptics. Why is there suffering in the world? Why does God allow evil? If there is a God who's all-powerful, why does evil exist? And the book of Job gets at that, doesn't it? But I'll tell you what else the book of Job does. Imagine this now, that God establishing in the Hebrews Bible, in their very first book that was ever written, the principle that it was possible for a righteous man to suffer. They should have known it. 
that when Christ suffered, he wasn't suffering because he was an unrighteous man. And over and over you read the witness of the Gospels and his own enemies declaring, he's done nothing wrong, this man's done nothing amiss, I find no fault in him. But they looked and said, cursed. And he became a stumbling block to them. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. To the Jews, a stumbling block. Couldn't get over it, you see. Because they couldn't realize what's said here. Yes, Christ died on the tree, and he bore the curse, but he was made a curse for us. To redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us in hanging on a tree. And so the use and the exposition of Scripture to point to those who sought to maintain their blessing or enter into that blessing by keeping of the law. What then was the purpose of the law? Verse 19 tells us it gave, uh, that would have been a natural question. Paul, if you're saying all this about the law, well, what then was the purpose? What good was the law? Well, the law served a purpose, didn't it? You see, it gave sin the character of transgression. It's okay to step on the grass as long or until there's a city ordinance put up, which probably someplace like Connecticut could very likely have, you see, uh, an ordinance to not step on the grass, right? Some places are more prone to that kind of a thing. You see, the law gave sin the character now, not just, you know, a pick a deal, something bad. It's in the character of a transgression. You're breaking a commandment that God has said. One of the purposes of the law. The other purpose of the law is to shut, uh, to, to not give life. That's very clear. Verse 21. Uh, the law could never give life. This is about the third time you're going to have here in this book of Galatians how clear it is what the law could not do. Remember that at the end of chapter 2, I, I do not frustrate the grace of God. If Salvation could come by any other means than Christ died needlessly. If you could be saved by your own works, why did Christ die? Why the cross? Why the suffering? If you could be saved by your own works. He says it again in a different way here. If there had been a law given, verse 21, which could have given life, well, righteousness would have been by the law, you see. But there wasn't. It couldn't bring life. What it did was to conclude all under sin, to show that all were guilty, and to shut everybody up to just the avenue of belief, verses 22 and 23. The Scriptures concluded all under sin. Why? That the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. And ultimately, and now the argument is, fantastic then, you see. And we have to get this carefully. But it's one of those places where in the book of Galatians it's so clear. You almost want to say, I never like to say, I want you to get this because I want you to get what the Lord wants you to get. But if I could have my druthers and get you to get something, this would be one of those things I'd get you to get. Okay? Because it's so powerfully clear in the book of Galatians. Now, I want to tell you another thing about the relevance of this book. And I want to suggest to a, a brother that you know, life has its ironies, doesn't it? So as John was asking me something about where we've moved to in the past couple of years, last two and a half years, uh, we've been living in Satellite Beach. We are now in fellowship at Bethany Bible Chapel by the Sea, where I now am under subjection to Henry Sardinia, who is my elder. <laughs> Brother. 
unbelievable, you know. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> so life has its ironies, yes. I respect my elder, you see. Anyway, I don't know where I was going with that, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, yes, pray for Henry. As many of you know, he spent a few years in Spain, in a, in a small assembly there. By the grace of God, they saw a lot of good things happen while they were there. And he's been back several times to visit just recently. One of, you know, this is the relevance of this book. One of the leading men in that assembly now has fallen under the influence of people who say, you have to keep the law. You have to keep the law. And he's a, he's a strong influence in that assembly. Henry is scheduled. He's felt burdened to go back at the end of this month. I think he leaves on the 27th to go back for a short trip to try to, you know, Bring the scripture and try to help. See, these things, you sometimes think, oh, that old stuff with the Galatians, that was back then. No, I'll tell you, it's everywhere. And if it isn't right now, it will be again. So we have to learn these principles. And I, I've lived long enough, as some of you have, Ken and others, you know, we dealt with things perhaps when we were early saved, certain movements and things, and you thought, oh, that's gone, that died off. Boom, crops up again over here, maybe under a different name or something. But, you know, so we learn these principles. Very relevant. Pray for Henry. It's a... I think it's a critical trip. That little assembly has been rocked by it. As you can imagine, this leading brother. So, I pray that God will give him wisdom and help in the scriptures. But I say that to say that when we come to this section here, uh, the purpose of the law that was to bring us unto Christ. Now, there are those that, and these are legitimate, I'd say there's at least two legitimate views, uh, interpretations of what this means to bring us unto Christ. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. And uh, one of the views certainly is that, well, the law was a schoolmaster, and what a schoolmaster was, or a pedagogue in that day, was sort of a, it's, it's hard for me to find the right English word, a, a governor or a governess would be the old English word, but more than just a babysitter, okay, one who trained you, who taught you etiquette and rules and social graces and all the other things, and you were under that tutelage, you see, and so they, they see it as one who ultimately would bring you and put you in the hand of Christ now. But I take it a little bit differently. And I want to say it this way, according to the passage, that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us up until the time of Christ. That we might be justified by faith. And I say that because of what verse 25 says. After that faith has come, you are no longer under the schoolmaster. Now follow the argument. Look in verse 24. It's very clear. Who was the schoolmaster? Verse 24. Who does it say? The law. Verse 25 says, You are no longer under law. The schoolmaster after Christ has come. You, are, you couldn't find a verse clear to me in the New Testament to say that as a believer in Christ, you are no longer under the law. It's clear, isn't it? And it does raise a question which we'll seek to answer. Not sure, I think we'll probably get at it a little bit tomorrow. If we're not under the law then, as the scripture clearly states that we're not, what then is God's method? you see, of us maintaining holiness, uh, becoming more and more sanctified, 
What is God's method now? And you would be clued in because you find here what he has to say about the schoolmaster, don't you? If we're not under the schoolmaster anymore, and we're not being led around and taught everything by this person who trained us in that way, and educated us in that way, and told us what was right and wrong every way, how then does God treat us now? And that's the question that he'll lead into, and it's, it's really... I want to share something, too, that I've told the ladies before. Very important to get scriptural concepts down. But the key is found in verse 26. You are all the sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. He treats us now as sons. Ladies, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a son of God. It has nothing to do with gender. And I'm reminded of the man who said to me before, you know, I never struggled with the fact that women are called sons in Scripture. He says, I have a little bit of a problem that I, as a man, am called the bride. So it cuts both ways. There's terminology that's very specific in Scripture that doesn't have anything to do with gender. It communicates something else. Think now, in the Jewish frame of mind particularly, as well as what would ultimately come out of this passage in the Roman culture, of what it meant to be a son. All of the privileges, all of the responsibilities, the inheritance, and everything that would come to you. And you see, for a woman in that day, whether it was in Jewish culture or Roman culture, they never entered into what the male child got. The privileges, the benefits, the rights. So for Paul now, the Spirit of God by Paul to say, you are all, who are believers, the sons of God. I tell you ladies, that's a powerful thing. It was to them then. Those women never had the privileges of sons. Whether it was Jewish culture, or whether it was Roman culture. The women were treated... Very substandard, you see. And now Paul comes along and says, no, no, no. You women, you have the same privilege as any male does in Christ as far as your standing in Christ is concerned, as far as the benefits that accrue to you because of salvation, as far as the blessings of God and the inheritance even, not just to the firstborn sons, you see. Well, it is, but you ladies, you also are the sons of God. By faith in Christ Jesus. So that's a powerful truth. We're going to get into that, Lord willing, uh, coming up. But uh, we're going to stop for there and uh, take our bagel break. When we get to the next section, which I think I'm going to deal with tomorrow, uh, how can I enjoy true freedom? How can I enjoy true freedom? We're going to still be in Galatians, but I'm going to fast forward a little bit, take up something else, and then uh, we'll get back into this. Lord willing. So, it's bagel break time. Pray again. It's always good. Father, thank you for allowing us to have food. Many in the world still to this day don't have enough to eat. Plenty in this country don't have enough to eat. And so we don't take it for granted. What an amazing thing it is the scripture says that we can even eat and drink to the glory of God. 
Help us, we pray. We give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.